Open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 3. How about a quick Hebrew lesson before we begin? That's what you woke up wanting today, right? A quick word about a word in Psalm 3, and then we'll pray and begin. Do you see the word selah in Psalm 3? It's off to the side three times. It's pronounced selah in Hebrew. I know some people today call it selah. I think there's like a girl pop Christian pop group named Selah. I don't know. But I know most people call it or pronounce it Selah. It's Selah in the Hebrew. And I'm only telling you because I'm an Old Testament major and I have OCD. So I want you to know why I pronounce it Selah because it's pronounced Selah in the Hebrew. But I'm okay if you say Selah because we all butcher Hebrew names and words. In fact, yesterday I was looking something up in Hebrew in Judges 15 and I discovered that Samson's name in Hebrew is not Samson, it's Shimshon. So I know none of us are going to start saying Shimshon. In fact, we'll probably get to heaven and say, hey, Samson, and he'll be like, my name's Shimshon. It just happens as things come to us in English. So if you hear me say Selah, it's because I'm going back to the Hebrew Scholars have no idea what the word selah means. People try and speculate. I think the most common thought about it is that it means pause, that it's written there so you're, you're to pause and stop and think about what was just said. But the reality is that we just don't know what the word selah means. Your Bible may have a footnote that says that the word selah might be a musical term that gave direction when singing this psalm in congregational worship. So maybe it's a cue for a guitar solo. Why not? That's as good as speculation as any. Who knows? God knows. We don't know. And that's about all we can say. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and there are so many things that we don't understand from it, little words like selah, but we know enough to know that we're sinners and that you are a loving, kind, and gracious, merciful God who loves to be around sinners, and you can't keep yourself away from them, and that's why you sent Jesus so that he could live the perfect life that we could never live, and he would die in our place, and you raised him from the dead. He's coming again to gather those sinners that have trusted in him around your throne. And so we thank you that we have enough for that. That's enough. And then there's a lot of other extra stuff, which is great. But we get to know you. Help us to understand Psalm 3, we ask today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you knew that Psalm 3 was coming, didn't you? Like that uh, dreaded boogeyman in every 80s horror flick. You knew that Psalm 3 had to show up in the Psalter, didn't you? I mean, you start learning how to live the blessed life of Psalm 1, and then Psalm 2 comes along and gives you the assurance that Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, is in control of all the nations and all the leaders of the world. And then as soon as you read the very last words of Psalm 2, which say, blessed are all who take refuge in him, you suddenly get hit by Psalm 3. It's as if Psalm 3 can't wait to see you put to work all the theology that you learned in Psalm 1 and in Psalm 2. And so we have the ending of Psalm 2 and the beginning of Psalm 3. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
I would like you to meet. Oh Lord, how many are my foes. Welcome to Christianity. Welcome to discipleship. Welcome to the kingdom of God. Maybe you paid attention to the heading of Psalm 3, which says, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. The background here is when David's son Absalom led a revolt against David, his father, to try to dethrone him as king. It takes place in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 18. All of this family drama that was happening in David's life was a result of his sin and Yahweh disciplining David for his sin. You remember his sin. He killed Uriah the Hittite so that he could take Uriah's wife Bathsheba to be his wife. And so the Lord is bringing discipline upon David. David messed up big time. You can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 12 where he gets caught. But Absalom, his son, is not squeaky clean either. He is, after all, rebelling not just against his dad, David, which is tragic enough, but he is rebelling against Yahweh's anointed king, King David. Do you remember the comfort that we derived last week from Psalm 2? That the Lord will take a war club to his enemies, those who try to dethrone his anointed king? Well, guess what? Absalom, David's own son, is dressed up and playing the part of one of those arrogant kings of Psalm 2. Those arrogant kings who think they can dethrone Yahweh's anointed king. Watch out, Absalom. There's a war club coming your way. How would you feel if your son had wiped out your friends, won the hearts of many in your kingdom, wanted you dethroned, and was in fact trying to kill you? To appreciate the words and the emotions of Psalm 3, you have to put one of those stickers on your chest that says, Hello, my name is David. Here's our big idea today. When troubles bear down on you, get your theological bearings. That's exactly what David does in Psalm 3. In verse 1, David says that his enemies are arising and they are saying to him, Yahweh won't save you. But then we see David in Psalm 7 saying, Yahweh, please rise up and save me. That's the bare bones of Christianity Right there, you are going to encounter problem after problem, trouble after trouble in your life, and you have to learn, like David, to say, Sick'em, Lord. You have to learn to get your theological bearings. When it's you, one versus 10,000 troubles, you got to be able to see that really it's one, the one living God versus 10,000 troubles, that it's Yahweh. Versus 10,000 troubles. And all the theology that you learned in Psalm 1 and in Psalm 2 should be enough to get you thinking this way. Everything that you learned in the first two Psalms has prepared you to face everything that you can face in this life. When trouble bears down on you, get your theological bearings. And that's what David is saying in Psalm 3. So look at verses 1 to 2. Hear the word 
of the Lord. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. You don't have to know Hebrew to get David's point here because it's as plain as day in English. How many, many are rising, many are saying. David's got problems, many of them. His enemies, the ones who have jumped ship and now play on Team Absalom, are everywhere and they just keep running their mouths. These enemies have already installed and anointed Absalom as the new king. They love Absalom. Second chance. 2 Samuel chapter 15 says several times that Absalom had won their hearts and they want David gone. They keep running their mouths. So you have to picture them shouting out to David, Give up, David! Absalom is in charge of the kingdom. And if you think Yahweh is going to save you, you're nuts. He won't deliver you this time. So many foes. So many rising up against David. In fact, the word rising in Hebrew is a participle suggesting ongoing action. This is happening all the time. It's getting worse by the minute. David is dropping in the polls. His approval rating has tanked. And not only that, all the political pundits keep saying over and over again, Yahweh's not going to save you. Yahweh's not going to save you. They keep running their mouths, but in the process, they end up giving David an idea. I'll start running my mouth to my God. Look at verses 3 through 4. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. Notice the contrast here. Many are saying, But you, O Lord, it's emphatic in the Hebrew. They are running their mouths all day, but you, Yahweh. And what does David say about his God? What he says about Yahweh is what helps him get his theological bearings again. First, he says, you are a shield about me. All of these enemies have David surrounded, but one layer closer into him is Yahweh. The Lord stands between David and his enemies. The Lord is his only defense, but that's the only defense that David needed. To get through David, they got to go through Yahweh. Good luck with that, enemies of David, because the last time I read Psalm 2, Yahweh takes a war club, a rod of iron, and smashes to pieces his enemies and those who try to dethrone his anointed king. He says, you protect me, Lord. Then he says, you are my glory. The idea here comes from the Hebrew word for glory, which is kavod. Kavod means weightiness or substance. It means heavy. I I think like the hippie movement in the late 60s and 70s really knew what the Hebrew word glory meant because they would say something and say, whoa, man, that's heavy. That's what the word glory means. Kavod, glory, means weightiness, heaviness. The word is used in the phrase, the glory of the Lord. Glory, when it says it's weighty or heavy, it means that God is the most important person 
in existence. So when scripture says, the heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19.1, and, and when we say here at Grace in our mission statement that we exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything, it means that the heavens and us here at Grace want to declare to everyone that God is the most important person in the universe and that he is our treasure. And that's exactly what David is saying here. When David says that Yahweh is his glory, his weightiness, his heaviness, his substance, he is saying, Absalom may have taken my throne. I may have lost all power in the eyes of the people and I no longer rule them. I may have lost everything. I may have dropped in the polls and people want to impeach me, but I still have God. They may have taken everything from me. They may have taken the castle and cut me me off from access to the royal kitchen and all the perks, but they can't take God from me. He is my glory. He is my everything. This is David getting his theological bearings. And then he says, you are the lifter of my head. David is down, sad, because he is down in the political polls. David is down because his own son is leading a coup and rising up against him. David knows, though, that the Lord will lift his head. In fact, because God is all of these things to downtrodden David, he looks up to God in prayer. Verse 4 says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. David is on the run. He's away from Jerusalem, away from the city of God, away from the tabernacle, away from the presence of God, if you will. And yet the distance between David and Jerusalem is no match for how close Yahweh really is. His prayer gets through to the Lord, and the Lord answers. David, who is down in the poles, downtrodden because everything in his life is crashing down around him, fills his mind up with the truth of who God is, a truth which stands in contrast to the lies that he is hearing from his enemies. So verse 4 says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. We don't know what the Lord said to David or how He spoke to him. Was it an audible voice? Did a prophet like Nathan come along to encourage him? We don't know. All we know is that obviously it affected David. So much so, because we'll see in a moment, that David got a good night's sleep. Even though his family is falling apart and the nation is falling apart, David gets a good night's sleep because of what the Lord says to him. David's many enemies who keep growing by the minute keep telling him, that Yahweh won't save him. They keep spouting off theological threats. Yahweh won't save you. But David keeps having theological thoughts. Yahweh is my shield. God is my shield. He is my everything. He is the lifter of my head. God is my shield. He's my everything, my glory. He is the lifter of my head. And there's something about getting your theological bearings when trouble comes, like David is doing here, that has a way of settling you. There's something about getting your theological bearings that has a way of calming you when trouble and hardship comes into your life. 
It's like the old Peanuts cartoon where Linus and Lucy are staring out a window at a torrential downpour. Lucy, looking concerned, says, boy, look at it rain. What if it floods the whole world? Linus responds, it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. Lucy, now smiling, says, you've taken a great load off my mind. Linus replies, sound theology has a way of doing that. There's something about getting your theological bearings when trouble comes your way that has a way of settling you. There's something about getting your theological bearings when trouble comes that has a way of calming you. You can get a great load off your mind when you get your mind on God. Sound theology has a way of doing that. And so Linus and Lucy would tell you today, when trouble bears down on you, Get your theological bearings. And that's exactly what David did. Now look at verses 5 through 6. What happened after David got his theological bearings? I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. I'm sure the leadership gurus who write books on leadership would read this and accuse David of being a bad leader. How can you be sleeping, David, when the company, I mean the kingdom, is falling apart? I'm not a leadership guru, but even I want to know. How are you sleeping, David? How were you able to count sheep, David, when the flock under your care is revolting against you? How were you able to catch some Z's when your enemies are trying to catch you? It all has to do with the theology that he learned and that he has been rehearsing. Now, notice the I in verse 5. It's emphatic in Hebrew, just like the the but you of verse 3. The reason David can sleep at night when all hell is breaking loose is precisely because of the but you in verse 3. David is saying, because of who you are, Yahweh, I can sleep at night and I don't need the Tylenol PM. I can sleep because of you. Notice, too, that these phrases are in the past tense. I lay down, I slept, I woke up, for Yahweh sustained me. David is saying, I didn't sleep with one eye open. I put in earplugs, I wore that mask thing over my eyes to keep out the the light. I slept real good because the Lord sustained me. I got my theological bearings So I got a good night's sleep. But this is not a one-time thing for David. This wasn't a chance thing that he got a good night's sleep. Notice in verse 6 that he is also speaking of his future, of the many nights that await him until his situation, his family problem, his kingdom problem gets resolved. He says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. David will not fear the many thousands that have him surrounded. And there's that word many again. David sure likes to use it. He's saying in verses 5 through 6, I'm not going to be afraid of the many enemies that have me surrounded. I'm going to sleep every night because my theology makes me drowsy. 
David is saying that drinking in theology, drinking in the promises of the gospel, drinking in the character of Yahweh is like taking NyQuil. David is saying, if you want to wake up feeling rested, start with the nighttime sniffling, sneezing, coughing, aching, fever, best sleep you ever got with a cold while surrounded by thousands of enemies and experiencing extreme family drama medicine. And that medicine is the character of God. And understanding and trusting in the character of Jesus will help you get your theological bearings and even get a good night's sleep. David slept, and he woke up alive. Nobody slit his throat in the middle of the night. But this is very important for us to see here. His enemies and his troubles were still there when he woke up. You see what Psalm 3 is saying? God may not remove the trouble. You may still hear the treble in the voice of your troubles, but he will sustain you through it. So understand this, Grace. This is not a psalm claiming immunity to troubles or that you can wave a magic wand and they will go away. This is a psalm saying life in a fallen world is hard. You will have family drama, family issues. You will have other issues and troubles in your life, but you can get a promise from God that gets you through the night. You can bank on the character of your God, and you can pray to a God who typically sends your troubles to the dentist. To the dentist? You heard me right. Yes, look at verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek And you break the teeth of the wicked. Something interesting happens here in the Hebrew tenses of the verbs strike and break. David has not yet been delivered from Absalom and his toadies, but he has enough peace to sleep through the night. And then the Hebrew words that he uses here are what are called past perfects. They they get translated in the future tense. David is so sure of his salvation, so sure of his deliverance, the very things that his enemies said would not happen, that he speaks of his deliverance in the past tense, even though it hasn't happened yet. David is so sure of Yahweh's character as the one who is a shield about him, the one who is his glory, the one who will lift his head, that David speaks like this deliverance has already happened, even though he's in the middle of it. Even though his deliverance is yet to be, David talks like it's already happened, as if somebody came from the future with a video and said, come here, David, I want you to watch this. See, Yahweh saves you. That's how he talks. David is so sure of Yahweh's character that he can say with confidence, arise, Yahweh, save me, because this is what you characteristically do. Be who you always are for me. Punch them in the face, break their teeth, send these people to the dentist. Of course, Some people may have an issue with this kind of prayer. 
Some people don't like to think of God taking a war club to his enemies. Some people don't like to think of God taking a rod of iron and smashing his enemies to pieces like pottery, which we saw last week in Psalm 2. Some people don't like to see Yahweh as every dentist's friend. Some people don't like to see Jesus as a mixed martial arts fighter who doesn't churn the cheek but actually punches his enemies in the cheek. Some people prefer a God who lets you sit in his lap as he caresses you with his ultra-soft, well-manicured hands that smell like some strawberry lotion from Bath and Body Works. Some people want that kind of God. But when you get desperate enough and your troubles start to double and triple and quadruple and get to the many thousands, trust me, suddenly you'll get your theological bearings and you'll want the God of Psalm 3. And the God of Psalm 3 loves to help his people when they're in trouble. David knows this and that's why David is praying David is asking God to bring justice, asking God to bring judgment, asking God to work salvation precisely because David knows that he is God's anointed chosen king. He's not praying that God would wipe out his neighbors because they blare their radio too loud at night. David wants to be saved from people that want to kill him. He wants to be saved. The very thing that his enemies said would not happen. And the only way that David will be saved is if his enemies are destroyed by an uppercut from Yahweh. I have a feeling that many dentists in the ancient Near East had seen enough of Israel's enemies in their office that they could testify along with David, when trouble bears down on you, get your theological bearings. David is just rehearsing the gospel here. He is just asking God to be who he is. Just just do what you typically do, God. That's all he's doing. He's getting his theological bearings. He wants the coup that his son Absalom is responsible for to be squelched and put down. He wants peace to come to his family. And that means restoration with his son Absalom. Even though we know sadly from scripture that that never happens. David wants all of the reality show type drama that is happening in his family and in his life. He wants it all to end and to go away. David wants peace in his family. He wants peace to come to his kingdom. He wants peace once again in the land of Israel. And so he prays. Look at verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. David is not just concerned about his own neck. He wants the salvation and deliverance that his enemies suggested never to come. He wants it to come, but not just to him. He wants Yahweh, the one from whom salvation and deliverance comes. He wants Yahweh to show up and bless his people. David is saying, Lord, you are the one who delivers your people Do it. Be who you are for us. Do what you do best. Save us and let your blessings and your deliverance and your salvation flow out to me and to all of your people. And isn't that what believers do? 
Don't we look at God's word and see him there? And don't we read about his character and want him to be who he is for us? Don't we do this when we find a promise in God's word and we hold on to it like a vice grip? Can't we say with Paul in Romans 8? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't Paul just telling the Roman churches here, when trouble bears down on you, get your theological bearings? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's the gospel. If God did not spare his son Jesus, but gave him up for us, won't he take care of us? If God sent Jesus to live the life that we could never live because we're sinners, and if God sent Jesus to die the death that we all deserve because we're sinners, then doesn't it make sense that he'll take care of his children? If he spared not his only son, will he not take care of of all of his kids, if he is for us, I mean, really, who can be against us? If God is for us, and if the Hebrew word selah, which we saw three times in Psalm 3, does mean pause and think. If God is for us, and if the Hebrew word means pause and think, then maybe we should pause and think right now in the middle of Romans 8. If God is for us, selah, If God is for us, then who can be against us? It might even be a good time to add a guitar solo. If God is for us, insert guitar solo, then who can be against us? The real question for some of you today is, is God for you? Have you repented and turn from your rebellion against a holy God, and have you trusted in Jesus? That's the most important question today. You've got to figure that one out. Otherwise, when Jesus returns, not only will he punch you in the face and knock out your teeth, 
he'll also cast you into hell where you will suffer torment for eternity. I don't want that for any of you. I don't want that for any of you. I want every single person in this room right now to be able to walk through all of these exit doors saying, I am not an enemy of God anymore. I am a child of the king. I have been adopted into his family because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's what I want for everyone in here today. I want all of you to leave today saying, salvation belongs to the Lord. Psalm 3 says so, and I know so. And if you can say today that Jesus has saved you, then all you need to do today is get your theological bearings once again, and Romans 8 wants to help you. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's take some time and pray this morning. Father, we thank you that you are so faithful. You are the everlasting God. And many people here today, God, are probably going through some overwhelming things. That's just Christianity. We experience trouble upon trouble but you remain faithful. So those here today, God, that are just overwhelmed, they haven't been able to sleep at night because they're so overwhelmed. Would you help them to hang on to Psalm 3 today? Would you help them to hang on to Romans 8 and say and believe if God is for us, who can be against us? And it's not a magic wand, God. It's not a potion or some magic formula. Some people today will need to fight and rehearse and memorize and say that verse over and over again so that they can get their theological bearings. So would you by your grace now and by your spirit come and comfort hearts? Those that are saying today, many thousands have risen up against me and I don't feel like God's going to help me. Would you renew their faith and their trust in you and in your character today. God, I ask today for those in that situation, arise, Father, arise, save them. Oh God, there are people here clinging out to you, crying out to you, saying, God, please save me. God, please help me. God, I'm begging you, I'm asking you, do what you do best. Bring salvation, bring deliverance to your children so that they will then go and tell people, salvation belongs to the Lord. You will get great glory, God, if you deliver people today. So would you do that now? Be who you are for us. Do what you always do. God, we ask so that your name will be glorified. And then, God, I ask you to save sinners right now, those people that have not trusted in you, that do not treasure you, that do not say, Your Jesus is my glory. Would you grant them repentance right now? Would you regenerate them by the Holy Spirit right now that they may cry out to you and say, Have mercy on me, a sinner? God, come today right now and just do what you typically do. Save sinners 
save sinners from eternal hell and save sinners who are going through hell right now so that your name will be glorified. Strengthen your people, God, in the midst of the hell that they're experiencing. Strengthen them so that they can say, Jesus is my glory. Jesus is my treasure. Jesus is my everything. Do it, we ask God, so that you will get great glory. In Jesus' name.